that that has been the biggest adjustment for me is that for you know for the first time in my life I don't have a built-in group of best friends that I know I'll be seeing every day. We're gonna go out on the field. We're gonna score as many goals as we can. We're gonna have fun. Oh, Becchio, well placed. It has been my pleasure and my honor to represent you all. This is Carson Shanks. I'm, I'm, I'm a seven foot white guy, and the first thing that people think when they see me is basketball player. A basketball player. Former basketball player. For, for me to. <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, fall ass backwards into a Final Four run was, was a pretty sweet deal. Not just any Final Four run. We're talking about one of the greatest runs in college sports history. Carson was a member of last year's Loyola Chicago Ramblers, a team that etched their name into the history books by tying for the lowest seed to ever reach the national semifinals. The Ramblers gave a whole new meaning to the term March Madness. They stole our hearts and busted our brackets. They maybe even renewed our belief in a higher power, thanks to the magical, motherly presence of their team chaplain, then 98-year-old Sister Jean. For a few wild weeks, Carson and his teammates were the protagonists of a Cinderella story that captured a nation. Loyola, they are in the tournament for the first time in 33 years. Good and gracious God, we're here today to beat Miami. We feel confident in playing this game. We're focused. The Ramblers are moving on! The Ramblers from Loyola, Chicago, looking to keep their dream alive. The sky's the limit for us. Sorry if you guys didn't figure it if we mess up brackets, but, you know, that's, that's our plan. Towns for three! It doesn't really get any better than that. That's something we dream about. We saw their heart. He saw their never say die. Porter Moser is taking Loyola Chicago to the Alamo City. The fans have dispersed. The noise has quieted. We're over a year out from that whirlwind of a run. Carson has hung up his size 17 shoes and embarked on new adventures since then. We were lucky enough to have Carson share his story with us. Episode 1. Cinderella after midnight. Hard hitting journalism. Do you think Sister Jean listens to podcasts? <laughs> uh, I believe in a perfect world that Sister Jean does listen to podcasts. However, I believe the podcasts that she listens to are uh, for people that are just better people than than uh than you and i what are three words you would use to describe your relationship to basketball or your basketball experience first one that popped into my head would be turbulent uh challenging the second one and i you know i'd say gratifying would be the third one all right well you've thoroughly teased our listeners with those first two words so can you (laughs) Can you speak more to maybe the the turbulent and challenging elements? For sure. I mean, as an athlete, especially as an athlete that uh, you know was fortunate enough to play at a, a pretty high level, it was 
it's never uh, it's never really smooth sailing. You know, there's even the best players, uh, you know, players that are much better than me have have ups and downs with the game. And there's uh, there's a lot of times where the game kind of takes from you, and there's a lot of times where you take from the game. I was lucky to be a part of some really good teams and have some some pretty decent individual success at various levels, but. There's always times where you wake up in the morning after a bad game or whatever it may be, and you really you ask yourself, how am I going to get through today's practice? And just when you think you are ready to be done, then it's, uh, you know, then something happens that reminds you that, you that you love the game, and it brings a lot of joy to you. So you hinted at it. You were a member of one of the greatest Cinderella stories in <laughs> NCAA basketball history. I hope that still gives you goosebumps when you hear it. Um, yeah, no, it's, uh, it's pretty bizarre. I mean, you're all over the news, social media. We're not just talking ESPN and SportsCenter at this point. This has become, like, right. national in every way. Can you talk about what it was what it was like to be part of a group as it propelled to that sort of recognition and into the history books? I mean, it's it was a feeling that I honestly I, it's it's hard to kind of put into words. It's it was a just such a kind of a whirlwind. We'd wake up every day and we I mean, we legitimately had the the eyes of the country on us for for the better part of a month. And every game we would play, it, it would get a little bit a little crazy, a little more hectic and then but by the time we probably hit the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, we couldn't walk around Chicago anymore. I mean, even the guys, even guys that didn't really play or whatever it may be, we were getting recognized everywhere. Speaking to that point, the the way that it was handled within our team and with our coaching staff was was something that really made that whole thing possible because there was such a such a focus on just the next game for us. It was never really a Oh, oh my God! Like we're in the Final Four. It was oh, our next game is against Michigan. We have to try and beat Michigan. There was times where you get caught up thinking about oh my God, like oh, I, I'm going to go talk to CNN right now and then go to an open practice in front of twenty thousand people. We'd get back to the hotel room and we'd go through scout and we'd get refocused and then it was just kind of became another game. More specifically, what was it like being a senior on that sort of dreamlike run? Right, so I, you know, I was lucky enough to, you know, join uh, join Loyola for that for that one year. I did my undergrad at the University of North Dakota. Played three years there, and was lucky enough to go to the first NCAA tournament in school history there. So we fin- I finished up in North Dakota, and I decided that I was going to throw my hat in the uh, the grad transfer process. You just like making history. It's just kind of <laughs> it's one of your hobbies. I grad transferred to Loyola, and I really wasn't sure what I was getting into. I'd never been on campus. I'd never met any of the guys, never met the coaches. I just talked to them on the phone, and they just kind of sold me on this vision of, we think this this can be our year. So I get uh, I get on campus, and we start playing, and I'm like, this team, you know, I just got off an NCAA tournament team. Like, this team has the capability to be something pretty special. No way in hell did I think we were going to go to the Final Four, but I thought that us going to the tournament and doing some damage, I thought that was definitely a real possibility. So for, for me to... <laughs> for lack of a better term, uh, fall ass backwards into a Final Four run was, was a pretty sweet deal. Yeah, wow. Uh, that is like the best transfer story probably in, ever. <laughs> so, to the Final Four, you guys do lose to Michigan. 
What are the immediate feelings, the thoughts that you're having after that buzzer sounds? Well, you know, for me, it was unfortunate that I actually ended up getting, uh, I ended up getting injured earlier in the year and uh, was never really able to fight my way back into the rotation purely just because uh, we had a freshman center that was just so phenomenal at Cam Crutwig. I was able to kind of take on more of a, uh, more of a coaching role as a fifth-year senior, so for me, it was more so thinking about the other guys. Some of the guys on, the, on that team had been there through some pretty tough times. So to get to that peak of, uh, of the Final Four was obviously amazing, but so, you know, so many emotions had been invested into that. I was more so just so sad for some of the guys on our team because that was the last time they were ever going to throw on a Rambler jersey. Obviously, there's a... There's a added uh added element of emotion with us i mean we were up 10 points on michigan with eight minutes to go and we you know there was a feeling that we were going to go to the national championship and go play villanova obviously very raw emotions it was just such a group that is uh it's just a group that's always going to be connected together despite the cliche that you know you build a family through sport uh that was you know that really was a team that turned into a family you know we all will forever be linked through that uh, through that run. So you talked a little bit about an injury, and I wanted to talk about your, your next step after mm-hmm. after Loyola. So you did you always know that you wanted to go play pro some way, somehow? Um, how did, For sure. How did that decision come to be, and what was that process like? Right, so I big reason for me to go to Loyola was I, I believe that if I could have had a – you know, a successful year at Loyola on a really good team that uh, it would have set me up pretty well to uh, play basketball after college. And obviously with, with that not working out personally, uh, as far as playing time and all that goes, I was a bit worried about that. So it, it, that really kind of threw a wrench into the process of trying to find a team after college. But it had always been in the back of my head that uh, after college, I knew I uh, I didn't want to be done playing. So, you know, I, I went and played in a, in a small country of Malta, which doesn't have a great tradition of basketball. But for me, it was, I guess it was more so just kind of fulfilling a dream of whether or not I was playing in the most prestigious basketball league in Europe or not. I was a pro basketball player for a little bit, and I'll always be able to carry that with me. The five months I spent in Malta were, were fantastic, purely just because... For the rest of my life, I can say, hey, I went overseas, I lived in Europe, I lived on a tiny island off the coast of Italy, and I got paid to play basketball. So if I would have told my uh, my, ten, my 10-year-old self that, I would I would have been mad because I thought I'd be playing in the NBA. But looking back on it now, I mean, I couldn't be more thankful that you know, I got the opportunity to play pro ball. You're in Malta. Mm-hmm. So maybe the arenas were not as imposing as the ones you played in the U.S. The crowd, the, cr- the crowds, maybe not as big. The media coverage not as extensive. I think probably a lot of people who play a sport on a big stage, stage in the states, you know, basketball, football, whatever it is, could speak to this. It, it's very different. Um, you, especially having just emerged from the very bright lights that March Madness can bring. Playing in Malta, it's a big shift. What was it like going from the kind of history-making hype 
to this new <laughs> to this new kind of basketball experience. Right. No, it was. Uh, you know, I I don't think I could have picked a, a bigger contrast between two stages of my life. Uh, I had just gotten done playing in front of I think it was seventy eight thousand people in San Antonio. I'm talking to Charles Barkley before our game. Then I go. To, what is it? Maybe three or four months later. Uh, I'm flying onto this on this little rock in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea uh, with 300,000 people on it. So I, but from a basketball perspective, I go from having the absolute best you know best this country has to offer as far as basketball goes to my first game in Malta. I I took uh, I took maybe 30 seconds to to count how many people were there and. So I went from seventy-eight thousand people to eighty-two people at uh, at my games. It was it was a real eye opener for me as far as I guess how lucky I was to have grown up in the states playing basketball. We take for granted in the states that we can just go to a high school, a middle school, an elementary school, and just you know find a couple of hoops that are ten feet tall and trust that this equipment's not going to fall apart. And my first practice in Malta. I go up and dunk and hang up on hang on the rim, and they say, "No, you can't do that because we've already had this rim fall off three times." It's a uh, you know, it's, it was a sharp contrast, but it really did make me appreciate you know, kind of a mutual love for the game of basketball with with, with a different culture because those guys over there and myself included, we weren't playing to make the big bucks. We were playing because of a genuine love of the game. It was it was. It was like I said, it was eye-opening, but super thankful for the experience. Yeah, maybe uh, LeVar Ball and the Ball brothers need to go to <laughs> Latvia to Malta and uh, generate some more interest. <laughs> so how did you know it was it was time to walk away? So for me, I uh, finished up over Christmas. I knew I wasn't going to go back to Malta. I, I wanted to see if I could maybe make a bit more money or whatever it may be, but I got back and was talking with my agent, so we were going through the process of trying to find another team, and it really just kind of hit me that it just seemed that my playing career had just kind of run its course. I, you know, I felt as though there wasn't really anything left for me and myself to achieve. I, in theory, I probably could have, you know, I could have knocked around Europe for five, six years and played a lot more basketball but for me I after the final four run there was you know you don't ever expect to do something like that and once I got back to the states uh, for Christmas I guess I just kind of decided that it was time for me and I, I vividly remember sitting in uh, my ice house in northern Minnesota with my family and sitting back and just hanging out and not having to worry about working out and worry about the grind of you know, staying on top of myself as far as staying in shape and kind of honing my skills. And I realized that I was just content with, with calling it a day and hanging it up, which was kind of a cathartic experience for me. And it was pretty, you know, it, it made me sad to, to hang them up, but I knew it was probably the right time for me. You did literally just get a job, assistant men's basketball coach at the University of Minnesota, Duluth. All right, pause. This is just so cringe, but listeners may appreciate how this question originally went down. I pronounce Duluth as Duluth. This shows how 
I'm a West Coaster and like a city girl and the fact that I didn't know that Duluth was how you pronounce it. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's uh, no Minnesota. Minnesota's tough. Cold. We, we got a lot of we got a lot of uh, pretty interesting pronunciations up here. Duluth is the it's, it's the airport right outside of DC. You just say it with a lisp. Anyway, we brush ourselves off. Big congratulations. What are you most excited for in this new role? Well, you know, it's it's kind of been a whirlwind for me as far as getting into the coaching business. After about a month of sitting around my cabin up north, I uh, decided that you know, I, I always knew I wanted to coach. So I, I called my called my alma mater at the University of North Dakota and asked if I could help out in any way. So I went up there. I was a uh, video coordinator up there for three or four months and kind of coincidentally he had coached the uh the head coach of the university of minnesota duluth one thing led to another and ended up getting the job in duluth and it's been you know i've been on the job for about a week now and it's been just so fun kind of being an integral part of the staff up there i you know i couldn't be more excited to be in the position that i'm in what what type of coach do you strive to be are you going to be the yeller that needs his own assistant to make sure he doesn't get ejected or what's, what's, what's your style so I've been lucky, you know, with me bouncing around so much, I've been lucky to not only work under, but play for some, some great coaches. I'd love to be a hybrid of all the guys that I've I've played for and worked for. I'm so new to this business that I guess I really don't know uh, what kind of what kind of coach I'll be. I, I believe that the best coaches are ones that can chew you out, but two seconds later throw, uh, throw an arm around your shoulder, so... I've, I've got the beginnings of what I want to be as a coach, but I'm uh, at, at the same time, I'm figuring it out as we go. So you're about, what, a few months out of the end of your career, 13 months out from the Loyola Chicago days. Is there anything you miss yep. right now about being a competitive athlete that you thought maybe you wouldn't miss? Uh, uh, you know, honestly, you don't realize how much you love little things about about playing until you're done playing like i you know i as much as i'd love to be one of the guys as a coach you know there's always got to be a bit of a uh, a bit of a barrier between the coaches and the players and you know, there's just nothing like you know kind of the little moments with 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 your teammates you know whether it's hanging out in the locker room and the hotel on the road going out to dinner after a game or whatever it may be you know as much as i miss being a competitor and you know lacing my shoes up and trying to prove that I'm better than the guy across from me. You know the, the things that I'll miss the most are just being a part of that group, having that built-in that built-in support system of, of guys that love you and think of you as as their brother. So that that has been the biggest adjustment for me is that for, you know for the first time in my life I don't have a built-in group of best friends that I know I'll be seeing every day. You know I've I've got. I'm lucky enough to be a part of a team, but it's definitely a different context being a being a coach compared to being a player. So perhaps we have some current athletes listening, and we don't want to get too bogged down in nostalgia or anything. <laughs> um, what's something maybe about being an athlete that people take for granted or we don't think about as being so awesome that athletes should appreciate? I was the first. I was the absolute first guy to moan about practice. <laughs> I, you know, I want to do it to the coaches, but I would, you know, I'd do it to my close buddies on the team. I'd be like, man, I, don't, I want no part of practice today. But I can't tell you how badly I would love to show up at show up at the at the locker room at three o'clock at 
uh, Gentile Arena or noon at the University of North Dakota and just go to practice and compete with the guys and get better with the guys. And so practice is, is one that has really stuck out to me. And, you know, there's just a sense of confidence that you get being an athlete, a college athlete, that, you know, you're one of the few people that have been lucky enough or have been talented enough to get to a point where you've been recruited to go play a sport at a high level. So that, that built-in confidence is something that you only get as a player. And when you're done, you're kind of searching for that next, uh, you know, for that next thing that you're good at because you've always been good at this one thing. So, you know, luckily I've been able to find that in coaching. And by no means do I think I'm a good coach yet. I'm, I think I'm a coach that, you know, could be good, but I have a lot to learn, so. Yeah, I mean, when you when you do say goodbye, it really shakes up your identity. You've been it doing does. this thing since you were five, and it's probably one of the first words you would use to describe yourself. You know, I am a right. basketball player. Correct. And I, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm a seven-foot white guy, and the first thing that people think when they see me is basketball player, and that's what I've always been. And, you know, now that you know, people come up to me and, talk to me and they're like oh you got to play basketball and I have to say well I used to now and that uh that's that's a real change of pace for me any words of wisdom or advice for those that are currently facing or will be facing this transition soon maybe those going into their senior summer right what do you wish you had known heading into the post-athlete life <laughs> I was uh I was always one of those guys that just like just like everyone else is, uh, when 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 old players or you know former teammates or whomever it is would come back and you talk to them and they talk about how much they miss it and how much not to take it for granted. I, in my head, I was like, "Well, I've got more time in college. I'm going to go play pro. All this stuff." And it never really, you know, I, I understood it, but it never really really hit home for me. So now that I'm on the other side of that, I can wholeheartedly back up the fact I'm sure there were times that I, I took my career for granted and I didn't enjoy every single second of it and appreciate every single second of it. all those that are coming up on the end of their career whether they're seniors or hanging them up, hanging them up you know playing some sort of pro ball or high school or whatever it may be appreciate every single second of it because you know like all athletes our, our times are limited as far as we can play the sport at our highest level. The little things that you don't want to do end up being the things that you remember the most. There's just, there there can't be, you, you don't want to be a guy that looks back and says, well, I wish I would have done this, this, and this, playing my sport, because by the time you realize it, it's, it's, it's a bit too late. So uh, just appreciate the situation that you're in and the fact that you get to, you, know, you still get to go lace them up and go play the sport that you love. Big thank you to Carson Shanks for coming on to the podcast. Also, good luck at... Uh, where am I coaching again? Duluth. <laughs> Hope you enjoyed our first episode of Run Along. Follow the show on Instagram at Run Along Podcast for updates, general banter, and info about future episodes. See you next time.